Well, good morning. As people trickle back in, we'll get started here. So a month ago or so, give or take, the summer kind of blends together for all of us, doesn't it? It was about a month ago. We wrapped up a series called Sabbath, Finding Rest in a Busy World. And we spent, that, we spent six weeks kind of unpacking how to live a life that is not hurried, right? How to live a life that is not hurried. Our goal was kind of off of John, John Mark Comer's book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And so we wanted to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our life because we live in a digital world where we're constantly distracted, constantly plugged in. And that series, that was near and dear to my heart. I've still kind of been living in that, to be honest with you, even as, as I'm prepping for the next weeks and all of that stuff. I just keep living there because I want to live, I want to live less hurried. I don't want to be so frantic and, and constantly running to and fro like a chicken with your head cut off. I just, I want to live at peace and rest. And so as I was prepping for these message, messages, I've been reading a book called The Good and Beautiful God. The Good and Beautiful God. And I came across a quote that I just couldn't help but share with you. It speaks to hurry. And the author from that book, he says this. He says, hurry is an inner condition that is fear-based. I just love that. I think that's why, that's why we get in a hurry. We fear. We fear if there's going to be enough time in the day to get our stuff done. We struggle to trust the Lord if we're going to have enough money in our bank account, and we, so we hurry. We run around because it's fear-based. And so I love the first part. He says, hurry is an inner condition that is fear-based. He says, here's what hurry says. In our hearts, when we're in a hurry, this is what it says. If I don't make my plane, or if I don't get X done, if I don't make my plane, everything will be ruined. All will be lost. Life as I know it will be over. But, and here's the key, when I learn to walk in step with God, when I learn to walk at his pace with him, if I don't make my plane, I'm going to be fine because my God is with me. He's got the whole world. He's got your whole world in his hands, as we just sang. Things will work out. Meanwhile, I will move my legs as fast as I can, and my heart will be happy and unhurried in the meantime. I love this quote. I want to live this quote out. I want to be okay in all and every situation because I know that the God of heaven who created me walks with me. I want to be able to take things in stride, to live through life with a pace in my heart, <coughs> excuse me, with a pace in my heart that is free and unburdened rather than riddled with stress and always restless. I want to learn to walk in step with the Father of heaven and move at his pace. And I love how balanced this quote is. I was talking with a friend of mine who's also a pastor. We were talking about the hurried series and being unhurried. I'm like, everybody's crazy busy. And he's, he's an older, older guy who I love, but he said, man, Levi, are you sure you're not just going to give license to all the millennials to be crazy lazy, right? We'll just throw up our hands and let go and let God, and, and we'll just kind of just take it easy. Like, he's like, I don't think our culture's crazy busy. I think they're crazy lazy, right? I'm like, well, Brother, I love you, but you're a little cynical, you know? It's like, but he's not wrong. And that's why I love this quote. It's so balanced. God is inviting us to walk with him in his, at his pace and to do our part, but recognizing that at the end of the day, our world is in his hands, that he's large and he's, and he's in charge. So he's given us things to do to cooperate with him, but he's promised to do the heavy lifting. And that is what I really want to get at to this morning. I would like for us to become less stressed and more rest-filled people. I would like to learn to walk at God's pace, to live an unhurried life, 
I think most of us desire this. The problem is, it's hard. It escapes us, doesn't it? To slow down and to walk with God at his pace. It's an elusive thing. And so this morning, I want to take another hat, another stab at helping you ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life and the fear that drives it or stands behind it. And to do that, to help root you deeper into the rest of God, we need to put a magnifying glass over God's patience, over his patience, over his patience. We've been going through a series this summer talking about who God is. And I wanted to do this because I think sometimes in church and in the Christian community, we can spend a lot of times, if we're not careful, just unpacking sin. And we can get so laser focused on our sin and don't do this and don't do that and don't do this. And it's not really that compelling. We get a, get a bunch of grumpy Christians that are walking around feeling really weighed down and condemned rather than like filled up with life and joy. And the only way to get that life and joy and the love of God in us is if we lift our eyes to who God is, and we focus on him and his character. And so I've wanted to spend the summer magnifying God most high. Who is he? Who is this God that we've been invited to worship? And as we learn who God is, I think the more we understand who he is, the more we focus on him, the more we'll be transformed in our hearts to love him and to live differently. And so that's what we've been doing, and we're going to do that this morning by magnifying the patience of God. We're going to do that from 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1 through verse 9. So if you have your Bibles, we want to, I'll invite you to turn with me now. If you have a hard copy of the Bible or if it's on your phone, but if you're going to be too distracted by Facebook or another app, then put the phone away, right? Unplug for a minute. We've got, we've got Bibles in front of you, the, the old school versions, the hard copies if you want to get that. But turn with me to 2 Peter 3, and we'll read together. And before we do, here's, I want you to look out for three things. Peter is going to invite us to remember three different things. He's going to invite us to remember the promises and prophecies of God. He's going to invite us to remember the power of God. And then he's going to wrap it up by inviting us to remember the pace of God. So see if you can spot those things as we read through the text together. Starting in verse 1, I'll be reading from the NLT. Peter writes this. He says, This is my second letter to you, dear friends. And in both of them, I've tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the holy prophets said long ago, and what the Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming back? All you Christians want to talk about Jesus coming back. Where is he? It's been forever. They scoff. From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Nothing's changed. Everything's, where is your God, they say. Verse 5. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command. And he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire or judgment. They are being kept for a day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. And the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. Okay, 
It's the end of the text. Now we'll walk back through it slowly and I'll point out the promises, the power, and the pace of God. So I see Peter invites people in verses 1 through 4. He invites us to remember the promises of God. He says, I want you to remember what the prophets said long ago and what the Lord commanded to you through the apostles. So to paraphrase, he's saying, I want you to remember, to reflect on, to think deeply often about the Old Testament where God gave promises and prophecies to his people. I want you to remember the New Testament where God spoke through Jesus and his apostles where he gave promises and prophecies. I want you to remember these things. And so I thought for the next four hours that we could review the 7,000 different promises together that are in the scripture. So I hope you didn't have lunch plans or anything and we'll just go through all of them, right? No one thinks I'm funny. That's okay. I was speaking at Miracle Camp and uh, no one thought I was funny there either. I had a couple dad jokes that I wove in there and no one laughs, but that's okay. That's okay. I often tell Rachel when she doesn't laugh at my jokes, my kids just roll my eyes. It's like, I'm the funniest person I know and that's the most important thing. So yeah, obviously we don't have four hours, right? We're not gonna go through the uh, 7,500 promises that are given. But what I do wanna point out to you is that is a rough estimate. If you were to to go and list, and there are people that have done this, list every promise that God has given to his people. So basically, those are are where God says, if you do this, or even if you don't do this, then I promise to do this. There are over 7,500 instances where God promises humanity something. 7,500, that's a lot. And on top of that, there are also hundreds of prophecies. So a prophecy in the Old Testament is where God tells the future, usually, to a person and then they recount it about what's going to happen to a nation, about a judgment that's coming, about the future of humanity. There are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies given, thousands of promises given. And we don't have time to go through them all, but I do want to think about one because Peter's calling us to remember these things. He's calling us to remember these things because as we remember them, as we think about the promises and we see their fulfillment, as we think about the prophecies and we see their fulfillment, that builds faith in our hearts to trust in who God is. And so there are over 300 prophecies that are given in the Old Testament that relate to the coming of the Messiah, to Jesus. Over 300, that's a lot. And one of them is so ridiculously precise that it's, it's mind-boggling that, that someone would have been given the future 700 years before it happened. So it, it comes from Isaiah 53, and if you, if you know anything about the crucifixion of Jesus, as you read Isaiah 53 and understand that Isaiah wrote these words around the year 700 BC, again, that's 750 years prior to the crucifixion of Christ, when you read what he wrote and compare it to what we know happened through the historical count that we have about Jesus, not just from the Bible, but from Josephus and other, other artif- uh, artifacts or archaeological evidence outside of the scripture, it, it, uh, it, man, it just really builds your faith. It really builds your faith. So if you were to go and read Isaiah 53, you would discover that God said, I'm going to send my son, that he is going to be despised. He's not going to be attractive. There's nothing going to be real fancy about his appearance, which we know Jesus wasn't like a real looker. He was just kind of average, right? We have also know from the New Testament of, how, of the description of the crucifixion that he would be we- beaten, that he, he would be mocked, that he would be whipped, that he would be beaten to the point where he would become unrecognizable. Isaiah 53 says that exactly. 
that he will be beaten like a criminal to the point where he becomes unrecognizable. And it says he will be pierced for your transgressions, for our sins. We know that happened as well. One of the Roman soldiers stabbed him in the side to see if he was dead. It, it tells us that 750 years earlier. And this is, this is probably the coolest thing. So if we take all that aside, it's like, well, you could say, well, if someone knew, knew about crucifixion, they could probably explain the process and get close. Here's where they couldn't get close. Jesus was a poor man, and Isaiah 53 says that he would be poor. But it also goes on to say that he would be, he would be buried in a rich man's grave. And he was. That would be a very uncommon thing to happen. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man who had a really nice tomb. He offered it up, and they buried Jesus in it. It's an incredible prophecy. It's something that if you're, if you're questioning whether or not the Bible is authentic and true, it would be a really great exercise to go through and look at the fulfilled prophecies that were given about Jesus and then compare that to the historical account that we have and we know what happened. Here's my point. The Bible is full of both God's promises and prophecies to us of what he will do for us and what will happen in the future. And Peter here is telling us to remember these things. He says, remember them, fix your eyes upon them, recognize that who God is. And as you do, as you remember the promises, the prophecies of God, here's something else I want you to remember. Remember God's power. Now, why would he ask us to do that? I see this coming from verses five through seven. Why would it be important to remember God's power in light of his promises, in light of his prophecies? It's important to remember God's power because people scoff in our day and age at God's promises. And Peter points us back to an example from the Old Testament in Noah. An example of Noah. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you will probably at least be familiar with the story of Noah. Whether you think it's true or not, that's for another discussion. I I believe that it's a historical fact. Whether you do, we can talk about that. But we're told in Noah there's a flood that went over the whole earth. And if we went back and, and read in Genesis, we would discover the Bible's take on not just the flood, but we could rewind and go to Genesis 1 and 2 and discover how the Bible says the world came into being. It tells us of creation. Now, the important thing that we need to remember when we read Genesis is that it's not a scientific textbook. So it's not, it's not exactly explaining the how in nitty-gritty detail that how God created everything. It's a theological book that's explaining the why and the who behind it. So not necessarily the how. So Genesis 1 and 2, what, what the point is, whether, whether you want to ascribe to a Big Bang or, or six-day little creation, the point is not the how. The point is that there is a God that stands over all of creation that specifically and specially created you and I and designed the earth that we live in. And then, if you would keep reading in, in Genesis 3, you would discover why there's so much suffering in the world. And it comes from a choice that humanity made to disobey God. And things got progressively worse as we moved away from Adam and Eve and moved out into the history of humanity to the point where you come across Genesis 6, verse 5. God looks out on all of the things that he has made. He looks out on all of the things that he has made. And it says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So God made a beautiful world, incredibly complex, sophisticated, and then humanity got to a place where we only did evil and our thoughts were only evil all the time. So what does God do? Well, he decides to start over using the family of Noah. 
We're told that when God looked at Noah, that he saw him as righteous. Not that he was perfect, but we're told before that, that Noah had a relationship with God, that Noah walked with God. You'll see that through Genesis. If there's a man or woman who trusts in the Lord, it will say, and they walked with God. They had a relationship. It was because of that faith and that relationship that Noah had with God that when God saw him, he looked on him as if he were righteous. So it's always been by faith. And because of that faith and righteousness, God comes to Noah and he tells him what he's going to do. God gives a prophecy, so to speak. He tells the future. He says, hey, I'm going to destroy the world with a flood and so I need you to build a boat because I'm not done with humanity. I want to provide a way for people to be redeemed, to experience salvation. And then after God gives that word, that prophecy to Noah, God waits. He waits. We're not told for how long he waits, but it had to be for a long time. And this is where we can use our rational brains. Again, the scriptures don't give every nitty-gritty detail about everything. God's given us reason and logic and science. Faith and science go, go, go together very well. So as we're reading the text, we're told that God gives this word and then he waits. Not for how long, but we can assume that it was for a long time. Do you know how I know that? Because the boat was big that Noah had to build. And he was not using cranes because those didn't exist yet. And he also didn't have a lumber yard that he could go to. He had to go chop the tree down and plane it off and, and, and build the boards for the boat. It had to take a long time. I've read different commentaries. Some people say 50 years. Some people say 100 years. Regardless, it had to take a long time. And we can ask ourselves, again, Scripture doesn't say this, but we can, we can use our brains and think a little bit about it. What do you think Noah's experience was as he's building this cruise ship out in the middle of nowhere. We can guess, people probably mocked him for it. They scoffed him. Think about, think about the scenario for a minute. Noah, you got, you got some craftsmen show up, right? You're ready to work, put to work. I don't believe in this project, but Noah pays, so I'll work for you. I ask him, it's like, Noah, why are you building this boat? What's your deal? He said, well, there's God in heaven who speaks to me. So you hear a voice in your head? Eh, it's not exactly like that, but I guess. God told me that he's really upset with the entire world because everybody's really wicked. There's a ton of evil, and he's done with it, and he's going to flood the whole world in judgment and kill everyone off except for the people that get into this boat. That's his story. That's his story. It's not exactly incredibly palatable, is it? No, it's not. So we can assume that, that as Noah's building this boat and it's taken years and people are involved in the project because it's a really big project, we can assume that people made fun of him, that they scoffed at him. We're told in 2 Peter 2, 5 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So we can assume again that as Noah is building this boat, he's not just building this boat and being grumpy and cranky. He's proclaiming righteousness to the people that are asking about it. He's explaining the gospel. Friends, we are desperately wicked, all of us. The world has gone to hell, literally. And God is going to start over. He is going to bring judgment. But he's asked me to build this boat so that those who trust on his word, that believe his promises and his prophecy, that they would depend on it, if they would repent from their ways and come into the ark, they could escape the coming judgment. Would you come in? Again, that's not explicitly in the text, but knowing our character of God and knowing that he gives types 
So he gives an example that will help us better understand who Jesus is. We can assume that just in the same way that I or whoever stands up here every Sunday proclaims the gospel and says, friends, loved ones, judgment is coming on this world. The wrath of God is going to come because there is so much evil and suffering and God is not going to hold back forever. But he's provided for us an ark in Jesus that those who would by faith trust and depend and enter into Christ, you might escape what's coming. That's the type that we're given in Jonah, or in in Noah. He sets forth an example for how we can better understand the, the gospel. And so Noah preaches righteousness to the people, invites them to repent, but no one does. All these people do is scoff. You're crazy. Stop talking about sin. Stop talking about judgment. I'm just going to do what I want. It's just going to be black. There is no afterlife. There's nothing. They just scoff. Friends, as we seek to remember the promises and prophecies of God, we need to also reflect on his power. He created this world with but a word. You exist because he knit you together in your mother's womb. He has the power to bring you into this world. He also has the power to bring judgment on you. That is his right. That is his right. And in this passage, Peter gives us another prophecy. He tells us after Jesus, when he returns up into heaven, and as we wait for him to come back once again, people will continue to scoff. We can see this in our scientific community. They scoff at creation. They say, you believe in creation? That's ridiculous. How could you believe in that? They'd rather, the, the, the secular community at least, they would rather us believe that there was nothing and then all of a sudden, out of thin air, there was just a big bang and everything. This giant puzzle that is our world with all of its intricacies and sophistication, with all of its complexities, it just by chance came into being. Folks, whether or not you ascribe to the Big Bang, you can be a Christian and believe in the Big Bang. I just want to ask the question, how, how did that happen? What caused it? In your life, have you ever seen there be nothing and then out of thin air, something? Not to mention a very complex something. No. Like if we want to ascribe to science, can we at least be consistent? Let's test that hypothesis right? Has there any, ever been nothing and then magically something without a cause? No, there hasn't. Not to mention, do we see things as we look at our world over time with enough chance? Do we see anything that progressively gets more sophisticated without the intervention of care and intelligence? No. If you don't take care of your house, eventually it falls apart. You have to paint it. You have to care for it. Right? If we don't take care, if there's no intelligence to guide us through, things don't get better, they don't get more sophisticated, they rust, they die, they atrophy. I respectfully want to say to our scientific community, whom I love, and there's a lot that we can learn through science, so much, but it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to butt heads with our faith. I think that we can mesh them beautifully well. I just want to say to the people that promote the theory of the Big Bang and everything out of nothing, without a cause, I want to say, you have more faith than I do. 
That takes so much more faith to believe that just all this happened rather than to believe that there's a creator who stands over and above it. And so Peter invites us to remember God's power. He created this world, and as we remember his power, that will bolster our faith in his promises and in his prophecy. The problem is God's timing, his pace, is not our pace. And so as we reflect on his power, we reflect on his promises and his prophecy, sometimes we get frustrated and we start to think, God, where are you? You are slow in accomplishing your promises. Where are you? And that's where Peter says, remember God's pace. He is not slow. As some of you think of slowness, he is patient. He is patient. Now, if you remember If you remember, I've said from time to time, it's really helpful when you're reading scripture, you don't just read it like a novel. You read it slowly, you meditate on it. Sometimes it's helpful to grab a word, to look it up in a dictionary. What is the word patience? What does that mean? How does Peter intend for us to understand it? There's a fancy linguistics tool called a lexicon. Again, you don't need to need no Greek or Hebrew, but you can use a lexicon on the blueletterbible.org. You could type in this passage, click on the word for patience, and then it'll give you some definitions of how you can understand how that Greek word, some of the different meanings that it could have from Greek to English. So I typed that in, I looked it up, and here's, here's the sense of that Greek word for patience. Peter says that God is patient, and when he says that, he means that God is even-tempered while enduring trying circumstances. He remains even-tempered, steady, even-tempered in the face of scoffers. He is slow to anger. Why? Because he does not wish for anyone to perish. You see, our God is waiting patiently and eagerly not looking for who he can vindictively crush. He is waiting eagerly and patiently, looking for who he can bless and be gracious to. He's looking to see who is going to not scoff, but to embrace his promises and his prophecies and reorient their life to come into Jesus, to come into the ark that he's provided to escape judgment and receive life. And so if we were going to put verse nine into our own words, we could say something like, God is not slow in keeping his promises, but rather he willingly puts up with a lot without getting angry because he loves his creation so much that he will endure suffering for a long time so that some would repent and be saved. Peter reminds us, or Peter's reminder should come as no surprise to us that have read our scriptures because God consistently, time and time again, using the same language, tells us what he is like. In the Psalms, in Jonah, in Exodus, among other places, he tells us, this is what I'm like. I'm slow to anger, and I'm abounding in steadfast love. A few, few weeks ago, we said that God is not an angry judge. He's not an angry judge looking for who he can quickly just smack and crush. That's not who our God is. He's patient. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He's not an angry judge, but he is a just judge. And that is something that we should say amen to. Praise God that you're just, right? Who in here likes an unjust judge? Nobody? Who in here appreciates a judge that would take a bribe? No one? Who in here appreciates a judge that says to the rapist, you know what? I'm just going to let this slide. I know it's pretty egregious, but we're just going to, no big deal. No one appreciates that. Why? Because you and I were created in the image 
of our God in heaven who is just. And when we look out in the world, we have an innate sense for injustice. That is because we're created in the God who is just. When we look out, we say that's unjust and we weep at the suffering and the evil that's in the world and there's an anger that rises up whether you say there's a God or not. We all look out and we say, I hate that. I want justice to be done. Racism is disgusting. I wish our people would take care of our planet. I hate that. I want there to be justice for the earth and for the people of God. Amen. We rejoice in that because we're created in the image of a God who is just. And he will bring justice. And that's what he says. I will not permit evil to endure forever. He's just. But he's also merciful. And praise God for that. He is patient. Praise God for that. Why? Because if he gave you and me what I deserve today, apart from Jesus, it would not end well for any of us. And so he says, I'm just, but I am slow to anger abounding in love. I am patient because I don't want any of you to perish. I have made a way for you to escape the coming judgment. In my son, there's a flood coming, but I have built for you an ark. Would you please come in to Jesus? Would you please get in the boat? Our God is just, but he's also patient. He is willing to put up with a lot, a lot of suffering, a lot of injustice, not because he's slow, not because he doesn't care, because he's patient. He is waiting to give grace to those of us who would turn to him. You say, Levi, how do you know that? Because I know some of the promises that he's given us in the Bible. Here are a few. Isaiah 49, verse 23. God promises to those who wait for me, they shall never be put to shame. He says, if you will wait on me, I will never shame you. He says in Isaiah 64, 4, to those who, um, to those for, God promises to, to us who wait for him that he will work for us. Those who wait for him, he will go to work for us on our behalf. You might not understand it. You might not be real, real happy about his time frame. You might not be able to see how he's doing it, but if you wait on him, he says, I will work for you. I will make a way. You might not see it. You might not understand it, but wait and I will work. I promise. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, God promises that those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on the wings with eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not be faint. I love the progression that we see in that verse because it shows us our progression as we come to faith in Jesus. He says, when you come and get into the boat of Christ, I am going to fill you with my spirit in such a way that you are going to soar like an eagle. The old you is going to be dead. I'm going to make you a new person and you are soar through life with a renewed zeal, with a new perspective on life but life is going to wear off that sheen, right? And as you begin to soar and as you continue to trust and believe in the promises and the power of God and you, you try to walk with him in his pace, you might soar down and come down off that height to a run or a jock. You still got some zeal, but life's taking it out of you a little bit. God says you will run and not grow weary as you continue to trust and depend on me. And for the saints in here that have been in Jesus for a while, you will know that as you, as you get to a place where you walk with Jesus 
and your, your pace slows down from a soar to a run to a walk. That God kind of just flattens the highs and the lows. And you've seen enough of his prom- promises fulfilled that you know he's got you and you trust and you depend on him and you're just able to walk through life protected, cared for, understanding that God will make good on his promises. You're enabled to live your life at a pace that is sustainable, sustaining, sustainable and rest-filled, rest-filled. That's my connection with that Sabbath series. This is how we do this. We trust on the patience of God, not running far ahead of him or getting impatient, but learning that he's not slow, he's patient. That will enable us to slow down in our own lives, to not run ahead of him, to be enabled to live a life of rest and less stress, knowing that we can do our part and trust that God will do his. I want to give you an application to wrap up here, and I'll be brief. I want to give you an application of what not to do. Israel, the nation of Israel, is really good at showing us how not to respond to God, and they do this in regards to his patience, along with many other things. In Isaiah 30, we discover that Isaiah was operating in the prophetic, was telling people about the future and about about what God wanted for them during a very contentious time in Israel's history. There were a bunch of surrounding nations, Israel, uh, Israel, Babylon, Assyria, that were coming against them. And we see, we see what not to do. Rather than, than remembering God's promises and his prophecies as Peter instructs us, the people of Israel, they forgot about God and they thought of him as being slow rather than patient. They forgot about his power. They themselves become impatient. The danger was too close for them. The odds of success were too small. You ever get in a situation where you just you can't wait on God because it's, it's just, I can't see a way out? That's what they're in. They can't see a way out. There's no way. We got to make a plan. We got to do something. Where's God? He's, he's slow. Isaiah 30, verses 1 and 2, describes what Israel did. He says, What sorrow awaits my rebellious children, says the Lord. You make plans that are contrary to mine. You make alliances that are not directed by my spirit, thus piling up your sins. For without consulting me, you have gone down to Egypt for help. You have turned to human wisdom, to human logic, to human effort for help, rather than coming to me. You have put your trust in humanity, in Pharaoh's protection. You have tried to hide in his shade. See, this is the opposite of waiting on our Lord. Israel became impatient. God had not delivered them from their enemy in the time that they thought he should. They couldn't see how he was working. They had no hope. They lost hope, and their patience ran out. And so they went to Egypt. And the key to their problem comes in verse 2. It says, without consulting me, you have gone down to Egypt for help. Friends, I think this is a perfect illustration of what it looks like to live a life of hurry and fear. It's a lack of trust in our God. Rather than trust God's patience, Israel became impatient. They decided to make a plan without consulting God, without waiting on him for guidance and direction. I don't know about you, but I think this is a sin many of us struggle with, I struggle with, on a daily basis. We charge ahead in our own plans without stopping to consult the Lord. And our patient God gives us a warning in verse 3 of Isaiah 30. He says, but by trusting Pharaoh... By relying on your own human effort, your own human conniving, you will be humiliated. 
By depending on him, Pharaoh, your humanity, you will be disgraced. In other words, your impatience is going to backfire on you. Egypt will not deliver you. It will be your shame. Your impatience, your inability to trust God's patience will turn out to be your humiliation. This is meant to be a warning for all of us. So what should have Israel done? Isaiah 30 verse 15 tells us, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. Coming to Jesus, entering the ark, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Trust in me, God says. Come to me, consult me, wait upon me. And verse 18, I just love. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show you mercy. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Folks, verse 18 captures the heart of our God's patience so well. Our creator God willingly endures a lot of evil, puts up with a tremendous amount of suffering that makes us weep and frustrated, not because he's slow or indifferent to it, but because he wants to be gracious to as many of us as possible. He's a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. And this passage says that blessed are those who wait for him. Blessed are those who remember his promises and his power and seek to walk with him at his pace, remembering that he is not slow as some people think of slowness, but he's patient, not wanting that you or anyone else should perish. It is my hope and prayer that the love and patience of God would win your heart. May it drive away the fear and hurry that we all live with in our lives and enable us to walk with our patient God in a more stress-free and rest-filled way. Let me pray for us and the band can come up. We'll finish with one song. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you for your patience. Lord God, I pray that you would help us not to respond to your power, to your promises with scoffing, but that you would help us to respond to your power and your promises with faith. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open the eyes of faith in our heart to know and, and to, hear, to hear the truth, that judgment is coming, and that's a good thing, because we crave justice, and so do you. Thank you that, that not only judgment is coming, and that we can, we can rest in the fact that evil will not have the final word, but thank you, Father, that you've made a way for that judgment to rest upon your Son rather than us. I pray that you would help us to, by faith, enter to Christ like the family of Noah did. That you enable us to trust in your promises in a way that would change how we live. That you would empower us to live by faith, to walk with you at your pace, trusting that you're not slow, you're patient. We love you, Jesus. Give us the strength and power to wait upon you as we wait for your return. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.